so all the lights went out, sound went out. Uh, so I had the privilege and the honor of preaching in the dark, just yelling, just yelling. It's always been my dream. I thought, man, I'm too young to yell at people, but it always been my dream and the Lord made it happen. I, could, I just yelled at everybody and they liked it. It, it was great. So, uh, but I just, I wanted, to, um, I wanted to thank you as a body for being such troopers. I mean, honestly, as soon as those lights went out, it's like the spirit and the anointing in the room jumped to a whole new level. Everybody was like, awesome, now we can worship. And uh, I'm not sure what that means, but um, it was awesome. And I wanted to thank you. Uh, I felt like the, the spirit of the Lord was strong in this place. And the word of the Lord that came forth was the word of the hour. It was, it was timely and it was appropriate for where we are at as a body. This morning, I wanna continue speaking on the DNA of Antioch Church. Last week, we spoke on the DNA of Antioch Church being a spirit of victory. And we looked at how God is victorious in his nature and who he is. And as such, being created in his image, when we are reborn into the family of God, that DNA, that latent asleep DNA of a victorious person inside of us is brought to new life. And uh, to be honest with you, a sermon like that is very easy to preach and to teach on. I mean, who doesn't like to hear about victory? Is, I mean, most of the time, if I come into a church and say, hey, victory, everybody starts getting excited. All right. So, uh, but this morning, we're not going to talk about the spirit of victory. We're going to move on. And, and I believe we're going to talk about uh, an aspect of who we are that is closely related and tied to the spirit of victory. And I'm just going to hold on to that and ask you if you have your Bibles if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter two. This is not necessarily the verse for the sermon today, but it is a verse that I believe we must embrace in order for the word of the Lord to have full effect in our lives. And how many of you want God's powerful word to be efficacious in our lives, not just right now, but every day after. Just amen, right? We want God's word to be powerful and effective every day of our lives. And so I wanna invite you to read this scripture with me, Mark chapter two, verse 22. Why don't you stand to your feet? And we're gonna, we're gonna read this together. So Mark chapter two, verse 22, stand to your feet as we read the word of the Lord together. And no one pours new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wine skins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wine skins. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, would you make our hearts to be new wine skins? God, if there are areas in our heart that have become hard, that have become rigid. Would you just, Holy Spirit, come now and work the oil of your presence into our hearts, into those callous and hard places. And would you make us soft that we would receive a new wine that would ferment within us, that would become powerful within us in Jesus' name so that it would be powerful and effective for your kingdom. 
as it comes out of us in our daily lives. God, make us soft and tender to you. Make us soft and tender to you, I pray. In Jesus' name, if you agree with that, say amen. 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 You may be seated. Now, since you have your Bibles out, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 22. If you have a pen or a piece of paper or just a finger, hopefully you have at least one. Go ahead and leave it there and then turn over with me to John chapter 13. We're going to be reading about the Passover feast that Jesus had with his disciples. At the Passover feast, this was a time that Jesus walked into knowing that he only had a few hours left with the disciples. It would be that very night that he would be betrayed and given over to the Romans for crucifixion. And I think it's important to pay attention to moments like these. This is the last time that Jesus had with his disciples, the last feast, the last supper. And as such, I believe Jesus was strategic enough to utilize that time to share some of the most important lessons for the Christian walk. Knowing that he was about to be departed from them, I believe Jesus distilled for them some of the most important truths for the life and for the living of Christianity. Now, in the study of scripture, when I was in school, every single one of my theology classes, they would always emphasize certain passages that were repeated multiple times in scripture. So like the Passover feast, for example, that feast is found in every single one of the gospels. And so in order to study and to get out of it as much as they can, scholars will oftentimes lay those passages side by side and they will compare and contrast the similarities and more importantly, even the differences in order to really get And what's happening, I'd like to do that with you this morning. I'd like to look at the passages and the description of the Passover feast from the perspective of Luke and the perspective of John. Matthew and Mark uh, almost word for word say exactly the same thing. But in Luke and in John, we see a lot more detail. And so picking up the story in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. John tells us it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. So here we see Jesus knew beyond the shadow of a doubt, this is my last moment with the men that I love. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress 
And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So multiple times here, we see that this is the last moment that Jesus had with them. He knew this was the last moment. When scripture repeats something again and again in, a, in, a, in just a few verses, we need to take note. Something important is about to happen. He was from God and was returning to God, verse four. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you gonna wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand no, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet and their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he was finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them, you call me teacher and Lord. And rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very, very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This morning, I wanna appeal to you that as we walk through the scriptures and we identify the DNA of not only Antioch Church, but I believe the DNA of every born again believer, that we would do so humbly with the wineskin that is soft before the Lord. And all I ask this morning is for you to consider with me, to consider with me what it is the Lord is asking of us, who he is calling us to be. As you read this story and do a little research, there's some interesting points that I'd like to reference. Customarily, the washing of the feet took place as people arrived at someone's home. And yet here we see they've been eating. And it was in the middle of supper that Jesus rose to wash the disciples' feet. In Luke chapter seven, verse 44, Jesus turns to Simon and he says, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet and her tears and wiped them with her, with her hair. The first example of the washing of the feet takes place when Abraham was sitting under a tree and the angels appear before him and he says, please wait here. Let me bring some water so that you can wash your feet. So we see a precedent in scripture that when someone comes on the scene, their feet is washed. And yet here in this passage, it happens in the middle 
of the supper. Now just imagine this, for a culture that prided itself on its cleanliness, all the ceremonial washings that were required and the the fear of becoming quote unquote unclean. And yet here they're sitting at dinner and you have to understand they didn't sit at wonderful high tables like this with high chairs that make you feel tall. (laughs) They lounged, they laid at the table. So you are sitting right next to that the stinky loafers of some person sitting next to you and they waited till the middle of dinner to wash their feet. Why? I mean, the only question you can ask is why? Why did they wait? Let's turn to Luke now because I think Luke gives us a little picture. Speaking of the same night, they're in the middle of the dinner And starting in verse 20, it says, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The son of man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. And they began questioning among themselves, which of them it might be who would do this. Now get this, Jesus is having dinner with them and he presents the new covenant and says, oh, I'm not going to drink of the wine until I return. At verse 24, the disciples get into an argument that is not a new argument. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. So there are two answers that I see to this question. Why did they wait? Why was it in the middle of dinner did they they wait for the washing of the feet? Culturally, the act of foot washing was looked upon as a lowly task. It was dirty. And I think that's not too far from the mark in today's culture. I know plenty of people who think it's disgusting to touch someone else's foot. And everybody said, amen. (laughs) In homes that were affluent, they had slaves or servants that would do this job because it was so menial, so looked down upon. And if the home didn't have servants, then the host would bring water to the visitors so that they could wash their own feet. So here's two things that Jesus just breaks tradition right away. Number one, there are no servants to wash their feet. And number two, he didn't have, as the host of this dinner, he didn't have someone bring water so that the disciples could wash their feet. He gets up and washes their feet himself. Now, this is important, you guys. The short answer is, number one, that I don't think the disciples wanted to. They didn't want to wash because to wash their feet would be an expression, an admission that I am the lowliest. So what happens? A dispute breaks out. Who's the greatest? Because I'm certainly not the least. The second reason I believe 
is because Jesus purposely didn't command someone to do it. Think about it. At the very moment they walked in the house, culturally, they should have washed feet. Nobody was willing to do it. So you would think the host, Jesus would say, you know what, Peter, would you just get down there and wash some feet? But he doesn't, he waits. He waits so that he can teach them a very important lesson. He waits so that he can demonstrate a lesson that we as Christians 2,000 years later must get into the bedrock of our faith. What is that lesson? That greatness is not found in a title, but in a towel. And that spiritual authority is not found in a position of high regard, but in a position of lowly service. I submit to you today that the DNA of Antioch Church is the DNA and the spirit of service, to serve. And the, the following, I want to read to you from a book, a short excerpt. And the book is called The Multiplying Church by Bob Roberts Jr. If you haven't read it, it's an excellent book. But let me just read to you this small portion. Why have people started churches throughout history? We don't have any, of, any record of believers starting churches in Jerusalem. But what we do know is that they met from house to house and also had large gatherings. The reason the church happened in Jerusalem was to coalesce all the people who became believers starting from the day of Pentecost forward. In other words, the church in Jerusalem began for a different reason than the one in Antioch. The church in Antioch started churches to transform the world. So the church in Jerusalem began to have churches in order to bring the family of God together. It just happened. I mean, 3,000 were added in one moment when Jesus stood on the day of Pentecost and preached a sermon. And so what do we do, guys? We've got to meet and we've got to study scripture and we've got to pursue the Lord and love him. But when the church in Antioch was established, Bob Roberts Jr. is submitting that it was developed and planted for a different reason. It was planted for the purpose of changing the world. I would say that that remains true today in Antioch Church. If you look at our mission, it's awaken, to awaken, equip, and to send. It's missional. And we believe as a body that we are called to have influence and to transform city, regions, and nations. That's what we're called to do. There's no doubt about it. So how did they do that? I wonder. How did, what was the method of transformation that the church in Antioch adopted? Well, I want to continue reading. Rodney Stark, in his brilliant book, The Rise of Christianity, writes, Cyprian, Dionysius, and Eusebius, and other church fathers thought the epidemics made major contributions to the Christian cause. When he says epidemics, he's talking about plagues. He's talking about sicknesses. He goes on to write, 
Dionysius wrote in his Easter letter that Christian values of love and charity had been from the beginning translated into the norms of social service and community, uh, community solidarity. Thus, when disaster struck, the Christians wound up with higher rates of survival because they took care of one another. They just lived longer because they cared for one another. And so plagues would come in and people would begin to die, but there was a service going on. I love that they call this in America a church service. And it's meant to be a service to you and to one another. Dionysius also wrote, most of our brothers, uh, brother Christians showed an unabounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another, heedless of danger. They took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Jesus, in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy for they were infected by others with the disease. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. Death in this form seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. Christians were so consumed by this, the DNA of service. It so marked their lives that when someone was sick, fear of catching that disease never crossed their mind, even to the point of a contracting disease and perishing with them joyfully. Get this, I love this. Emperor Julian, who tried to bring back the old Roman god, gods, the Pantheon, launched a campaign to institute pagan charities in order to match Christians. Julian complained in a letter to the high priest of Galatia in 362 that the pagans needed to equal the virtues of the Christians for recent Christian growth was caused by their moral character, even if pretended. They support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. Not only did Christians serve one another, but it was so a part of who they were. Service was such an activated part of their DNA that they just served wherever they saw need. And before you know it, the entire Roman Empire was deemed Christian. Now, did they have a long ways to go in that department? Absolutely. Was it political? Absolutely. But did God have a hand in it? Come on, absolutely. And it was through the love and the service of the saints. The DNA of Antioch Church is the spirit of service. We declare that this morning. We speak that into the foundation of who we are. We are what? 200 people strong on a, on, a, on a good Sunday. We're reaching 300. Great. But I'm telling you what, we're not concerned about, about the numbers of people if their DNA is not activated in the spirit of service, in the spirit of victory, in the spirit of passion. As we come to the last portion of my sermon here, 
If the spirit of true service is to be understood and practiced, we must understand and distinguish the difference between the heart of service and the act of service. There is a difference. There's a difference between the act of service and the heart of service. And I want to give you three different distinguishing points that I pray to God would he would just get it into us. He would saturate our Christianity and our belief systems with these three things. Number one, humility. The difference between this humility, this is the difference between choosing to serve and choosing to be a servant. See, because in choosing to serve, we remain in charge. But when we choose to be a servant, we give up the right to be in charge. See, even in religious circles, service has become something we check off a list and I've done my Christian duty. Don't ask any more of me. Don't ask any more of me. And I'm offended at this and I'm offended at that, but I'm here to submit to you that to truly be as Jesus was to the disciples, we must become bond servants. We must become love slaves to one another who have by choice given up our rights. And, and, and this is very difficult for us as Americans, as people who live in the United States, as our country was birthed from saying, no, I will not be servile to the King of England. Everything about us, it was the revolutionary war. Now, understand, when we talk about becoming slaves, that is a very, it's a very touchy topic, topic in America. And when rights are taken away, it becomes a very destructive, and I would say demonic thing. But, you guys, but when we choose to give up our rights, when we choose to live the life of a servant, of a love slave, out of love, it becomes the mode through which God can transform our city. It becomes, man, it becomes, I can give you an example of this in Philippians chapter two, verses five through eight. Paul writes, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be used in his, to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He gave up his right as God. But rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a, and translators today want to be very careful how they translate this word. So they say servant, but the word there is doulos, which actually means bond slave. A slave who said, listen, my terms of service to you have uh, expired. I fulfilled my commitment, but I love my master so that for all of my days, the rest of my life, for all eternity, I will be a slave to this master. 
master. And Jesus came in the very nature, in that very nature for us. As God, he gave up his right and said, I will, I will, I will serve out of love all the peoples and generations of the earth. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I could spend a lot of time here, but I don't think I need to. And the reason I bring this up is because what I don't want to do is I, want to, I don't want to throw more religious burden on you. That's not my heart and it's not God's heart. But I do believe that when we recognize that this is my DNA, this is who I am, then I can voluntarily choose to operate according to who God has created me to be. And that is a journey that only you can make. And the, and the pace at which you walk is a pace that only you can choose. But if you agree with me that the DNA of Antioch Church is service. And listen, service is a very interesting word. And we're going to get there. I'm not going to skip ahead. But we need to become, just God give us a new spirit of humility. I've been praying this prayer recently. You guys, I've been praying this prayer with all my heart. God, I need I need humility in my life. And I've always thought of humility as something that I would mantle myself with. But the Lord has been taking me on a journey and, he, and he's saying, God, Dan, I don't want you to mantle yourself with humility anymore. I want your heart to be saturated with humility. I don't want it to rest on you like a garment that you have to put on every morning. I want it to be who you are. Are you with me this morning? The second distinguishing difference I'd like to submit to you is sonship. John chapter five, verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. We see sonship here. And it was this very same Jesus who washed the disciples' feet. And I've never laid that verse next to that scripture of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. But when we do, what we see is that Jesus is not washing the disciples' feet out of his own soulish love, but he's only doing what he sees the Father doing. And I submit to you this morning that God is continually washing us today, not with water, but now with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. We say that God is the king and it is true, but I wanna to say to you that the very nature of God is God the servant king. God, the servant king. It's who he is. And as sons, we can only do what we see the father doing. Romans chapter eight, verse 15. Paul writes, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading again to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons 
by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Proverbs chapter 17, verse two, a prudent servant, I love this, a prudent servant will rule over a disgraceful son and will share the inheritance as one of the family. I believe this verse is saying to us that the true heart of service reveals a heart of sonship. Philippians chapter two, verse 22. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served. He has served. I think the true mark of mature sonship in the Lord is a heart of service. Not a heart of service that says, well, I get to pick and choose because I'm not in charge anymore. A heart of service that says, overwhelmingly, I must fulfill this need because I see, I can see the Father fulfilling this need. And the last attribute, the last difference that I want to submit to you this morning is very simply love. Philippians chapter two, again, I want to go back to this scripture. Let's now begin from verse one. Scripture says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. Other translations say vain ambition. When you serve, are you serving to get? I would submit to you that when you serve from a heart of love, what you get out of it does not concern you. And if you find yourself not receiving praise when you serve and being offended by that, I would say that we need to make a journey to the cross once again and say, God, would you renew my heart of love? I've become callous. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is the difference between the act of service and the heart of service. The love of God within us that moves us to meet another's needs. I was thinking about that and as I was meditating on it, I realized one of the things that we like to say in church often is that God is our Jehovah Jireh. He's our provider. And what is providing but identifying and meeting someone's need? God received that name when he asked Isaac, or he asked, uh, I'm sorry, Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. 
I wrote this in my journal. And that is exactly what God is doing through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. Humanity was in desperate need of salvation. And just as God provided the ram for sacrifice, allowing Isaac to live, so God is providing the lamb of heaven for sacrifice that we might also live. And all of this because of his great love for us. First John chapter three, verse one, see what great love the father has lavished on us that we should be called sons of God. And that is what we are. By God's love, he met our need. John chapter 13. Now I want to take you back to the the supper. John chapter 13, verse one. Again, it says it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And having loved them to the end, he got up and demonstrated service. He washed their feet. First Peter chapter four. I hope you guys are okay with this. I love scripture. It's the only thing that really gives me comfort. <laughs> and I want, and I want, I want you to just hear this. This is not just me trying to I'm not, I'm not trying to pound something over you. But what I am trying to do is I'm trying to take scripture, which is a light unto our path and show us the way. First Peter chapter four, verses eight through 10, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sin. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms to truly activate the DNA of service within us and within this church body, we must first have the love of God within us for those around us. Can't do it otherwise. Can't do it otherwise. Because if you do, if you attempt to do this without humility, if you attempt to do this without a firm foundation of sonship, if you try to do acts of service without love, then it becomes, as, you will become as the Pharisees were, who were whitewashed tombs. They were beautiful and clean on the outside, and yet there was death on the inside. How many of you have ever felt that way? You've been serving and serving and serving and all you find is death inside of you. I would submit to you that somewhere along the way, serving has become more about you than about the people you're serving. And we've lost sight of humility and we've lost sight of our sonship. Listen, in the parable of the prodigal son, the parable is not about the prodigal son. It's actually about the faithful son who in his actions remained faithful to the father and yet he could not celebrate the life of a son returning. Why? Because he was, even though he was a son, he was an orphan. Because somewhere along the way, he lost sight of his love for his brother. I want to end this morning just sharing a couple of stories. Amos chapter three, verse 12. Well, we'll get there in a moment. I, um, 
My mom, I had the privilege and the honor of growing up uh, in a home where my mother loved the Lord. And she would always tell me these true stories that I hated and loved at the same time. I hated and loved them. because I, I loved them because of how inspiring they were. I hated them because how heartbreaking they were. I remember, man, there's three or four popping into my mind, but I'll just share one. I remember she told me the story of this Korean pastor who had such a heart of love for the people of uh, a certain country. And uh, so he, it was actually a closed country. So this Korean pastor would sneak into this closed country and the government were, they were, they were taking lepers and they were casting these lepers into a rock quarry, an abandoned rock quarry. And then the government would just drop off food and, and, and supplies from time to time. And so if, they, if you came down with leprosy, the government would just would toss you in there. And, and so this Korean pastor would go into the, this rock quarry and he lived with these lepers, ministering the gospel. And story after story of how he would clean their wounds and he would, he, he would lay and sleep there with them. He didn't go there and then leave. And he didn't set up a separate dwelling. He just stayed in it. And I just, I remember as a child, I thought, whoa, that's, not, that's crazy. Why would you do such a thing? And the government would f- found out about it. So as governments do, they exerted their power and c- tossed him out of the country after much persuasion of not coming back. And you know what that Korean pastor did? He returned. He just snuck in again. Three four, five times kicked out of this country and he would just sneak right back in and go right back to those people, just loving them. Eventually he contracted the disease that he worked so hard to minister to and died in that place. And I just remember, and my mom would tell me that story and I just thought, that's it? (laughs) That's it? And my mom would be like, that's it. That's it. But you know, it established, I'm so grateful because it established something in me. That now when I, as I was studying, you guys, the Lord brought that back to my remembrance as I was studying this. And I thought, Lord, somewhere along the way in Western Christianity, I became concerned with position and authority. Not realizing that greatness is not found in a title, but it's found in the towel. In Amos chapter three, verse 12 Scripture says, this is what the Lord says, as a shepherd says from the lion's mouth, only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites be saved. Now that sounds so hopeless, doesn't it? That God's gonna, he's gonna, he says, as a shepherd rescues from the lion's mouth, only two leg bones. And then when I first went to ORU, there was a speaker by the name of Bill Wilson who spoke on this, on this verse. And uh, I was a freshman, you guys. I had been on campus a sum total of seven days. And I, and I just happened to go to the Maybe Center, which is like this large gathering place. And I just, by chance, someone was like, hey, you want to go? Sure. And I, I heard him tell this story. He's a pastor in the Bronx in New York. And uh, he started off by just having a children's ministry. 
and he would, now today he has the largest busing children's ministry in the United States, and I think in the world. And we're talking about a man, he lives in the Bronx, he stays there, he's been shot in the face, he's, uh, he's been set on fire, he's lost his voice due to lack of nutrition, and so now he talks like this, which I think just adds to his anointing. <laughs> And he's telling the story and he's saying, you know, so the shepherd goes and the lion comes and takes a hold of the lamb. And so the shepherd runs to save this lamb and he takes a hold of the leg and he, it's all he walks away with. So he goes back a second time and he takes a hold of another leg and that's all he walks away with. And so pretty, the, the lion now has had the lamb in its mouth for how long? It seems so hopeless then he runs back and he takes a hold of an ear. That's all that's left. He just takes a hold of an ear and he, and he pulls and pulls and that's what he walks away with. And, and you know, he makes this point, he says, even though it's hopeless, what do you think's gonna happen when the lion finishes with the lamb? If that shepherd goes back, what's gonna happen? And that lion is gonna turn on the shepherd. And yet the shepherd goes back. And he tells of this story. Bill Wilson tells the story even though he's the senior pastor now of this large church with this huge ministry, even though he travels around the world, he always goes back and he drives a bus. He just, he, not too long ago, he received his doctorate and you know what he did with it? He put it in a plaque and he hang it on his bus. And he goes and he picks up these kids and he said that there was this one individual, this little lady who knew no English she was Hispanic and she did not know a lick of English. And this is what she, she learns, two phrases. Jesus loves you and I love you. That's all she's learned. And she comes to Bill with and she's, she wants to serve. And, and through, through an interpreter, he's, I wanna serve, Pastor Bill. I wanna serve. I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere. And he says, okay, well, well why, don't, why don't you just come on my bus, you know, and just sit with the kids. So she gets on the bus and every, every Sunday morning, she just faithfully gets on that bus, sits there with children, can't speak the language. All she can say is, Jesus loves you. I love you. Come, there's this one little boy, this one little boy. And he's mute. He can't say a word. Something about this woman just like a magnet, this little boy came running to her. And every Sunday, he would come straight to her and he'd sit on her lap and she would say, Jesus loves you and I love you. Week after week after week, this would happen. Months go by. Finally, one Sunday, the boy leans in close and he whispers to her, now, he's, they all thought he was mute, that he was physically impossible for him to say anything, but he was not, in fact, mute. He leans forward and he says, I love you too. And he gets off the bus. And that was the last time she saw him. Months go by and they don't see this little boy and come to find out, they find his, they find his body under a stair stairwell beaten 
And I just think about that story, you know, it's such a hopeless situation. But she said, Jesus loves you and I love you. And that was it. That's all she had to say. Do you think that maybe we make too much of serving? Do you think that we maybe make too much of discipleship? Maybe all we need to say is Jesus loves you and I love you. There are many types of service. And when you have the heart of a servant, one filled with love, then everything becomes a service. The way you listen becomes a service. The way you refrain from gossiping becomes a service of love. In the hands of a true servant, all becomes service. And that is why service is all about the heart, not about the action. I say to you this morning that Antioch Church is a place of service. It's a place with the heart of a servant deeply ingrained in our sonship. And we're going to love this city. And we're going to love this region. We're going to love the orphans and the widows. We're going to love them. And no matter how busy our lives gets and no matter how much busyness the enemy tries to heap upon you, it will never steal the DNA of a servant from you. It's who we are. Do you not realize there is an eternal capacity of love inside of you? That we don't have to give out of our own love that is so finite and shallow. But we can go anywhere in the world. We can walk into any office. We can go home to any situation. And we can say with humility, with sonship, and with love, Jesus loves you and I love you. So I want to leave you with this this morning. Tomorrow when you wake up, would you ask the Lord, how would you have me serve today? As a son, I'm looking to the Father. I'm asking you, God, how can I serve you today? How can I serve the body of believers which I claim to be a part. Love one another. The thing I love about the verse in Peter is that he says, serve one another with the gifts that the Lord has given you. Not serve your bank account. Not serve yourself, but to serve one another. And I'm not suggesting that we don't worry about the bills we have to pay. <laughs> this is not what I'm suggesting. What I am suggesting is that we look at the Father. And whatever the Father's doing, man, let's do that. Would you stand with you, on your feet with me today?
How many of you would just say this morning that the Holy Spirit is touching your heart as it pertains to this word? Good. Then let's just lift our hands to Jesus. Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, you're speaking to me about becoming a servant, a love servant that reflects the heart of a son. And Holy Spirit, I just decree and declare that you have freedom to move in our lives and to change us and to transform us. And God, I say that our hearts are new wineskins for this new wine. God, that, it, that the rigidness of our lives would be soft so we could take this new wine and that it would not break us. God, I pray that tomorrow or even as we drive home, you would give us eyes to see as Jesus saw even in the midst of busyness, he saw Zacchaeus. He saw the five lepers. He saw, he saw them. God, may we see like the eyes of Jesus and give us a heart to love, a heart of sonship and humility that says, I will serve with every fiber of my being. Not out of my own strength, but God, out of the strength that you provide. And God, I just break weariness off of every single person in this room. And I break condemnation off of every single person in this room. And I, I, just, I just tear off uh, um, any type of uh, shame in Jesus' name. And we say that this word is inspiring for tomorrow, not a chain of yesterday. In Jesus' name, amen.